coming November 15th, a brand new season of That's What She Did podcast. We'll be bringing you 10 inspiring women you probably don't already know. On this new season of the podcast, we are shining a light on women that are at the intersection of activism and storytelling. They're fearlessly using their art, expression, and personal narratives to change the world. You're going to hear from actors and playwrights, poets and artists, filmmakers and authors. There are women unapologetically challenging the status quo, and you need to hear their stories. Prepare to be inspired. This season, our fourth, is going to be pure fire, and you don't want to miss this. Find it wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, that's what she did podcast.com. Hey there, inspiration junkies. It's me, your host, Tangie Renee, and welcome to season four, episode nine of That's What She Did podcast. We only have one more episode to go of this season. That's it. And then we're done for a little while. But I'm excited to say that the audience has spoken and we will be back in March with season five. And I'm already working on some really fun stuff for you. So please stay tuned. Thank you to everyone that has supported the show. Because of you, our listeners, this show is growing quickly to new audiences all the time. And I can't thank you enough. The best way to support the show is by hitting the subscribe wherever you listen and give us a share. You can share your favorite episode on social media and with your friends. That's really how this show grows. So thank you in advance for all of your shares, for your subscribes, and just for being a really great audience. Now, I want to introduce you to this week's guests. I was honored to be invited by the Denver Film Fest to talk to women filmmakers with films showing at the festival this past fall. In this episode, I have for you Zora Howard, a writer, director, and actor who co-wrote the film Premature, which was recently acquired by IFC Films. I also have Alana De Joseph. She's the owner and producer at De Joseph Productions and director of her latest project called A Towering Task, which is a documentary film about the Peace Corps. In this episode, we discuss some of the challenges women filmmakers face, how these two creators found their way in this challenging industry, and the power of storytelling to empower people and challenge ideas. Please keep in mind that this episode was recorded on location at the Denver Film Festival. That said, there may be a bit of background noise that was unavoidable. Also, a very big thank you to the Denver Film Society and their team for making these interviews possible. Now let's get started. Okay, Alana, thank you so much for joining me on That's What She Did podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm excited to talk about your documentary, A Towering Task. I got the chance to watch it last night about the Peace Corps. I thought it was really interesting, and I'm really interested in talking with you about your thoughts around using storytelling as a form of advocacy or impact on social issues in the world. Well, I think storytelling is pretty much the most powerful medium we have in conveying important messages. I think it's also one of the most overused tools that we have, and especially for the Peace Corps. Peace Corps loves to tell stories, and so we get a lot of anecdotes, and a lot of people start tuning out because they've heard the Peace Corps story before. They've heard the experience, the living out in a village somewhere in the mud hut, and they all start sounding very, very similar. And so when I say that I think storytelling as a tool can be overused, especially in the context of the Peace Corps, is 
not saying that we don't need to tell these important stories, but we have to be careful that we make sure that they are important stories that we're telling, that we can convey what is important personally to us in a context that is important beyond our own personal transformation. And so it was a big challenge to tell the story of the Peace Corps as an institutional history because there are a million individual transformation stories and we wanted to make sure that this wasn't just a documentary collecting all these individual experiences, but that it told a larger picture story of an institution in the context of its environment, of the politics going on, of the history going on at the time, of the different countries where it was, of Washington D.C. of uh, the return Peace Corps volunteers that came back. It was an interesting challenge to have a subject matter that consists of some of the most powerful, some of the most interesting stories, and to not make it just about those personal stories. So an interesting point you're making is that storytelling can be overused, overdone, and I guess sort of the way I'm interpreting that is that it's used irresponsibly sometimes, right? With that in mind, then why storytelling and why film? Really good question, because I still think that storytelling is the best way of getting messages across. It's just that we have to be thoughtful about it and maybe less self-focused and more focused on the people around us, which you would think Peace Corps is all about, right? It's all about the people around us. And so having these stories that allow everybody along on the ride, not just the people that have had similar experiences, is critical, but it takes some planning, it takes some thoughtfulness, it takes not just your own passion, but your empathy towards what your audience wants to see. So earlier, you and I were chit-chatting and we had a brief conversation about the word exotic and how Peace Corps is interesting because it provides an opportunity for people to get out into the world in a way that they would not have otherwise had an opportunity to do that. But there's also this exoticizing, if that's even a word, of people who are in these other countries and developing nations. And I think there's been some talk around the Peace Corps being sort of an elitist, privileged position to be in. As somebody who has a lot of experience with the Peace Corps, who has made this film about the Peace Corps, what do you have to say about that? Well, I think it starts that way in many ways because taking two years out of your life and going to another country where you're not going to have an income and you're not, unless you want to go into the foreign service, you're not necessarily building a career. Not everybody can do that. And so that already narrows down the segment of society of who's going to be there. And then the countries we end up going to are countries that most Americans have never been to, will never go to. And then within those countries, the volunteers aren't usually aren't in the capital, but tend to be out in the villages or in the smaller towns where the tourists even don't get to. And so it starts as a very exotic concept. It's other. It's the, I'm going somewhere out of my comfort zone to go into this completely different environment. And the first thing in your mind, of course, is cultural imperialism. So what benefit am I really bringing to the rest of the world? And I think that's where Peace Corps is really ahead of its game in many ways, because you cannot spend two years in a community and learn humility and uh, turn everything exactly around from, you go from one extreme from the, I'm going to go live in a mud hut with a straw roof and carry my water and a bucket on my head, and I'm going to be so cool, and the white savior, cultural imperialist vision of yourself, to... 
I don't know how to do any of the stuff that these people are doing. And here I am. Most volunteers are still in their 20s, although, you know, of course, there's no age limit and anybody can join. But the majority of Peace Corps volunteers are in their 20s with very limited life experience. And you get very humble very quickly. And the people around you go very quickly from being this exotic, far out, weird, different um, other to these are the people that are helping me find food here, that are helping me integrate, that are keeping me sane because I'm completely out of my element. And very quickly, you grow to love them and they become your family. And suddenly they're not other anymore. They're actual people. It's a cultural connection that you have. And that's why so many returned Peace Corps volunteers, you ask them about their Peace Corps experience. And it's this transformative thing because sure, it starts as this vision of you going to help. And that term help is already so loaded. In the documentary, we used as our guiding quote, a quote by uh, Aboriginal activist Lilla Watson. She said, so if you've come to help, you're wasting your time. If you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. So it's this whole concept that when you go to these countries, you might go there with this notion that you have all this information and you can help these people out, but you very quickly learn that your information doesn't really apply very well. And you're going to have to completely revamp everything you know. You're going to have to admit that you know very little. And then by learning over those two years from this other culture, you may be able to contribute something down the line. But most of the contribution is made to the Peace Corps volunteer. And when they come back, they take that humility with them and that understanding of another culture. And I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Mali in the early 90s, and I don't let a news piece slip me by that is about Mali. I'm very curious about Mali because now it's not this exotic African country where whatever might be going on. This is my friends. This is Bintu from Basa, and this is Mariatu out of Fulona. These are my friends. And when Mali becomes an unstable country, it means that they have real problems. And, and I can empathize because I was there. I lived there with them. So I think... The criticism is really important, but I would venture to guess that there are very few other organizations that allow their people to really question their own motives the way the Peace Corps does. That's an interesting point. I love that quote, by the way. I didn't know that quote before, so I want to ask you about it. The last part of it, if you understand that your liberation is entwined with mine, then you're welcome here. What does that mean? Well, it means that we're all in the same boat. It's a world community. And, you know, we talk about the documentary as engendering conversations around global citizenship. It's this whole notion of we can build walls and talk about nations all day long, but at the end of the day, climate change doesn't care. Diseases don't care. They cross borders. Um, Immigration crises will happen and keep going until we realize that what happens across the world to another person is going to affect us, we will not be able to solve our own problems. I'm curious to know why this subject matter. You've been in the film industry for something like 20 years, a significant amount of time, and you could certainly use your skills in any capacity, right? So why are you choosing the Peace Corps in particular? Why is this an important story to tell? I think it's particularly important now because we are dealing with rising nationalism, because we are dealing with a lack of understanding why we need to engage with other countries and other cultures. And American exceptionalism has done a number on this country. We have isolated ourselves so much from learning, from understanding, from growing, because we think we're already the best at everything, that we have really handicapped ourselves. And so when we were in Liberia, we were interviewing the American ambassador in Liberia, and I had, on our trip over, I had 
planned all these great complicated foreign service and, and foreign policy questions and why the Peace Corps needs to be independent from U.S. foreign policy and all that and got very complex and very insider baseball. And we were there during the 2017 inauguration, and I was watching it, and then I thought, my questions have to be way more basic. I have to back up. I have to ask this U.S. ambassador why we even have ambassadors in other countries, because I don't think that everybody gets that. I don't think that we have an understanding of our interdependencies with other countries. And so I think it's more important now than ever. I think Peace Corps volunteers are a critical element in our society right now. We have over 200,000 returned Peace Corps volunteers. These are people that have learned the hard way to build cultural bridges because it was sink or swim for them. And right now our country is more divided than ever. And who do we need right now? We need bridge builders. We need cultural bridgers and we need people that that are okay with reaching out to somebody who thinks completely differently than they do. I'm interested in the point that you're making around American exceptionalism. I think it's something that we don't have honest conversations about. And I'd like to know what you see as the antidote to American exceptionalism, to this white supremacy thing that is taking over, or at least feels like it's taking over. What do you see as the antidote to that? Mark Twain has a great quote about how travel is fatal to, and that I can't remember, but it is really, you have to get out of this country. Well, okay, let me make it simpler. You have to get out of your own bubble, out of your own culture. And at this point, that doesn't even mean getting out of this country, but get to a neighborhood where nobody agrees with you, where nobody thinks like you do, and then get to know those people as people, which is what Peace Corps volunteers do, right? You live on a village level, you live at the same level as the locals do, and Build that as your foundation of how you connect to them. Because right now, one of the things that America is really strong at is marketing. And we've been marketed to politically so much now that issue-based voting has become this thing. And we identify ourselves suddenly whether we're pro-life or pro-choice. We identify ourselves whether we're pro-guns or against guns or for gun control. Rather than, okay, we're all people and this is what we agree on. And then these are kind of random outlier issues that we might have to discuss. So I think it's really important that we foster these conversations, whether this is across the neighbor's fence or across the pond in some country that you might have considered exotic until you went there and lived with the locals. I want to switch gears a little bit, and I'm curious about your experience being a woman in the film industry. I saw a statistic earlier that um, women directors only make up about 8% of directors in the U.S., but in 1998, there were 9%, so we've actually fallen a percentage point. (laughs) And I'm like, that's interesting. So there's been literally no progress made in the film industry where women are concerned. What has your experience been like? What do you have to say about that? I would love to see the statistic broken up into documentaries versus feature films because I think you would probably see a difference there. I think there are more women filmmakers in documentaries and sadly a lot of times women filmmakers or women in professions find themselves in that part of the profession that pays the least. It's very frustrating and uh, I you know I love putting together female teams when I was on um, on location and I had some wonderful female camera operators and it was fantastic to work with them because we clicked in many ways and many things I didn't have to explain or or we would have these intuitive connections of what it is that we needed out of the shot. That said, I also, I have a daughter and a son and I see that we really need to empower our girls but we need to give our boys a narrative too because what we're doing right now is we're taking away the narrative that they had and we're not giving them a new story that they can tell themselves that is important. So I think in the film industry, 
Yeah, Hollywood is harsh. <laughs> the reason I ended up in documentaries is I found myself in um, Puerto Vallarta in Mexico on a set for a made-for-TV movie that went so straight to TV, <laughs> not to any theaters, as the second assistant to the B camera. And I was told that I would probably do about 10 years or so as the second assistant to the B camera or in the B camera department. Then, then I might be able to be the first assistant. And then maybe after several years, I might be able to be operator and once I got that for the B camera, then maybe I could switch over to the A camera and be second assistant there and work my way up there. And 50 years down the line, then I could be a DP if things worked out. And I was in Puerto Vallarta pondering my existence in this world. And there was a woman, a female filmmaker who had retired. She was a camera woman in Hollywood when there were no camera women in Hollywood. And she did camera for B-horror movies. And so um, her name was Brie Murphy. She has since passed away, but what what a wonderful woman. But I had breakfast with Brie and Brie said, girl, you need to get out of this hierarchy. You clearly want to tell your own story, so pick up a camera and do documentaries. And that's how I ended up doing it. And it's through the support of other women, I think, that we can build up more women in the field. But we need to do that because so oftentimes as women, we make it to a certain level and we're so thrilled that we got there that we're afraid to help anybody else out. And, and that's a problem. Does it seem like there are good avenues for women to enter the film industry? I found mine through documentary filmmaking because it's a very individual field. It's your own story. You're raising the funds, you're putting it together, and nobody can tell you who you can hire and who you can't hire. And if you make the choice to support other women, then you can create more avenues for other women. I have no foot in the door in Hollywood at this point. <laughs> Maybe through this film, who knows? But wherever I am, my mission is to help other women in this field. I'm really curious to learn more about how you come into this space of film when I was just reading a statistic that something like 8% of women in film are directors. And I couldn't find really great statistics that even went deeper than that. How many women are um, African-American women, Latino women, queer, whatever the thing may be. And those numbers don't seem to exist unless they're somewhere that I just don't know where they are. So that tells me that there aren't a lot of avenues for women to enter the film industry in general. And I'd love to know what that looked like for you. I'm actually not a director. I'm a writer and I'm also an actor. I'm a performer. So my that those were the two avenues through which I entered the film industry. My background's in theater and dramatic literature. So storytelling, yes. Film is actually quite new for me, being on the other side of the lens. This is my first project where I was writing and sitting in the creator's chair, which was very different and empowering. But it is through it's through my pen that I found my way into this industry. It's how I've found my way into all of the industries in which I participate is, is through writing. And I think that is a, a strength for all people, but especially for women, because there is no one who can tell your story like you. So you have that leg up, you have that advantage that there might be similar stories, but if you sit down and write it, that is yours, it is your intellectual property, and it's kind of a calling card into, definitely into theater, but also into film. I will say though, I've learned that film is a little bit more difficult for a writer, soul, just a writer by themselves, a writer who doesn't um, yet have directing credits to, to enter. It really does seem like a director's ball game. But that's all right. We kick our way in and that's all right. So it's, it's through the pen. Thank you for making the distinction. I should have said creator, which is what I meant. 
I know for you, Alana, you were like, I'm just gonna have to do this myself, right? Recently, I interviewed a playwright who is breaking into the film industry in different ways. And she writes and, and she said essentially the same thing. She said, look, I'm a, I'm a black trans woman and nobody was opening any doors for me. And so I had to not even make a door. I had to find a, a window. <laughs> and sort of write myself a window and get in through that. And it was still extremely difficult. And so I'm wondering what your experience have been in finding your own window or writing your own window and being determined enough to make that door open for yourself. Um, Have there been supports for you? Have there been other people bringing you along? What does it look like? The documentary world seems to be the easier world to enter for women in filmmaking, but the documentary world also rarely has the budget to hire a good writer right at the beginning. At the same time, we found in the documentary, A Towering Task, how unbelievably crucial it was to have a good writer who could not only pull together just all the right sound bites from the interviews we were doing, but who could craft that continuous narrative. Because I think so many documentaries get made and then at the end it's this afterthought of how do we make this into a story and it's the directors and the editors who are putting it together. But having a talented writer on the team can make all the difference. It did for us. Our, our writer, Shauna Kelly, she was also associate producer on it. She was just so brilliant. I did these interviews and she would find just the perfect soundbite and then write the perfect narration to make it work together. So bravo to writers. I think it's one of the most underappreciated profession in documentary filmmaking for sure. But I think that's what makes it hard because the documentary world is the world where a lot of women break into filmmaking. And then if there aren't a lot of writers appreciated, then that makes it doubly hard for the writer. And so, uh, yes, I had help making it into the film industry. I started on the talent side. That got my foot in the door as a kid. So I didn't even have much uh, control over that part. But I made good connections at that time. And then when I moved to Colorado, at the time, uh, our associate producer, Dave Steinke, he was head of audiovisual production for the Forest Service Rocky Mountain region. And he got to hire contractors in the city of Denver and in the state of Colorado and he became my mentor he took me under his wing and he had these one of my favorite assignments to this day was him saying okay Alana we're gonna do a documentary about the national grasslands here's the camera take the package go for a week and get me grassland footage I need sunrises sunsets I need grasses I need animals I need everything scenery and what a wonderful assignment I find my found myself in these little motels that advertised that they had color tv I got to get up before sunrise and sit out there in the fields with the camera and just watch the sunrise and it was a great assignment but it was just working my way up from grip and teleprompter and camera and audio and doing everything technical just so that I had an understanding so by the time I became a director I had respect and understanding of all those fields as well. What about for you Zara? I absolutely agree that connections are, are very important and I again learned that from my theater background which is a very very collaborative space And a film is too, but in a different way. But it was actually through connections in the theater industry that um, my co-writer, Rashad Ernesto Green, who is also the filmmaker, the director of Premature, we started in a theater space together. And he recognized me there for my writing. No matter how you're like-minded because you have similar processes or their process kind of challenges your own, which I think was the case for my co-writer and I. We worked differently, but we had, you know, a shorthand and he was already working in TV and film for quite some time. Because we both had this background of theater, there was this understanding this of ways to work, of creative vision as well, kind of like what speaks to us as artists and what we wanted to create together. And that was, yeah, I mean, he kind of yanked me in, <laughs> I'll say, to 
not this project because this is something that we decided we wanted to do together, but the industry because I'm like, okay, I'm out here, I'm writing a film, like who knows what's going to happen with this, but this is cool. And then he was like, now nah, we're shooting it. And I was like, oh my gosh. You know, that was something that was in the works uh, for many, many, many years. And that it's culminated in this film is awesome. But, you know, we'd always pegged each other as people that we'd want to work with artistically. And I think that's kind of how it happens that it's really about like anybody who has in their mind women man animal whatever you are that you can just do it all on your own that is a real uphill battle and you don't have to there's going to be stretches I think where you feel very much alone there were stretches in you know my career and still are where I feel again I'm a writer so it's just me and my pen and I'm just praying and hoping that this story that means and speaks so much to me is going to speak to other people as well and maybe someday they'll listen and that can feel very lonely those stretches of time I imagine sitting in the grass. (laughs) And thinking about and imagining what that project would be one day can be a very lonely, intimidating, but also inspiring space. But then ultimately, you do got to pull some other people in, tap on some other people to get the job done and get where you want to go. What would you want other women or young women to know about the film industry that are wanting to break in or and not necessarily just the film industry but in theater there's some challenges right there's heavy competition women are still in the minority in a lot of cases so for young girls or young women that are attempting to break into this creative industry and make a life for themselves. What do they need to know about it? I think the first thing is that you can expect to hear over and over and over again, that's not how it's done. I cannot tell you how many times in this last process with, again, with Premature and then throughout my career that I've been told that's not how it's done. So that you can be sure to expect that you'll be told how things go and expected to fit into a certain way of how things go, especially when you have no credits and nobody's checking for you anyway. Just kind of get in line and eventually you can eventually, if you follow the rules, fuck that because you know the way that things go obviously for years and years did not benefit or they were not to the advantage of women and people of color and queer people. That's not how the wheel was wrought. So break that, you know? It's not until somebody breaks how things go that they go another way, you know? And I I remember just kind of driving myself crazy with this process, being like, well, why? Why why doesn't it go this way? I understand that the the, the hierarchy is boom, 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 boom. I understand I'm not supposed to be on these calls. I'm not supposed to be a part of this decision-making process, but I don't understand why, because I wrote this thing. You know, this is my story. It's coming straight from my guts and my soul. So somebody better tell me something, you know, and that might mean, I've heard all kinds of crazy things. Oh, but your reputation. Oh, you don't want people to think this thing about you. Oh, blase, blase, blah. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to how you think about you and like who you want to be in your career, in your professional life. And I did not want to be somebody who was just quietly going along with how things go, especially when I knew deep inside that I wasn't down for how things go. I thought they should should go a different way. So for young or for up and coming or for people trying to find their way in, I think knowing, expecting that, and then knowing fiercely that you get to say, no, I think it should go another way. That being said, have a proposal for the other way that it should go. And that means knowing your stuff, you know, do your research, do your homework, read, 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 read. I'm a writer. So read, 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 study up so that when you kick down the door and you say, this isn't right, I don't want it to go this way, it should go blank, you can fill in that blank. People listen, you know what I'm saying? 
So I'm hearing you say, be prepared, right? Mm -hmm. Prepare, 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 but maintain your agency. How about you, Alana? What would you want other women to know? Well, I would add into that perfect cocktail that Zora (laughs) just described, uh, grit, tenacity, because I think we all have stories to tell and we're all excited about our stories. And if you first don't succeed, try, try again. You will start building your tribe. And when you build your tribe is when you will get the support to get it done. But it takes time and it takes the connections. It takes, and when I say connections, not as in, you know, the powerful people in powerful places, but as in finding the people that you click with, that you work with well, that will help you find your way to tell your story. And you're going to get a lot of and you're going to get a lot of disappointments and you will disappoint yourself because you will put out stuff that's terrible and learning from that and not giving up I think is really really important especially for women filmmakers because I think a lot of the young men have a lot of self-confidence and I think a lot of the young women don't and that's where that grit and that tenacity and knowing from the beginning that you're going to mess up and that's okay that doesn't invalidate you In, in fact it empowers you because you now have learned more than the person who never tried how do you stay grounded and maintain your authenticity in a industry and in a world that often doesn't see you or in some ways in a lot of ways wants to push you out you know in documentary filmmaking and probably in writing to a degree too you do so much on your own I'm not surrounded by a lot of judgment other than my own judgment seeing that it's not working until I am at a level where the documentary is almost out there then by the time it is out there it's a finished product so yes then it becomes an issue of where are the outlets for it we were lucky with the Atari and Task documentary that we had a built-in audience we have over 200,000 return Peace Corps volunteers who are struggling with explaining the Peace Corps to the rest of America and we're giving them a tool saying here finally take this to America to remind America that there are some good things that the American government is doing and that there are ways to bridge to these cultures beyond and to inside our own country as well. How about you, Zora? Um, In regards to staying grounded, I think um, I'm very blessed to come from a family that is very much behind and underneath and around and on top of me. They've supported me in the work that I've wanted to be doing forever. There's never a time I can remember not being, not feeling that support. So that gets me a long ways of the way. And I think using that and just to piggyback is pouring it back into yourself. Rashad, again, my my co-writer and the filmmaker of Premature, he told me something when we were on our way to Sundance. Again, I was like, we're going to write the story. And then all of a sudden we were going to Sundance. And this is, you know, and he just gave me a little tip and he's like, don't read reviews. And I just trusted him and I didn't read any reviews and, and kind of have adopted that as a, you know, as an artist, you make a thing and you put everything you have into it and then you give it away. And that's the hardest thing ever is giving it away. But, you you know, to remind myself and with everything that I create that there comes a point where you will have to, it's like a baby and you got to hand it off to the world. And at that point, you can just hope and trust that what you have given to it is enough to, to propel it forward or that you have actually quite little to do with how it moves in the world. You really can't control that. You have to let go. That has been hard. Uh, It's been very hard for me to let go of premature, but you know, I did have to give it away. We did have to give it away and it's gotten distribution and it will be in theaters and then there'll be an even wider audience and who knows what they'll think. They might hate it. They might love it. They might, you know, curse the people who made it. Who knows? But that giving away and trusting that the work that you did bolstered by that love and support of my family was enough. Alana, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Again, taking time out of a busy film festival to be on the show. Um, If there's one final thought you have about your work in the film 
industry. What would you say to a 10 year old girl that's listening right now that thinks maybe, maybe there's a director credit in my future? What word of encouragement would you have for her? Wow, that's a tough one. (laughs) I mean, it's tough because in many ways it's easy because it's everybody's encouragement. Go out there. If you have a story to tell, tell it. Tell it in the most authentic way that you can. Put yourself out there on film, on paper, on whatever medium you have and be honest with yourself as you are with your audience and then don't take no for an answer and keep trying. Good advice. Thank you again so much, Alana. Where can everybody access your film? PeaceCorpsDocumentary.com is our website, and you can find out where there are screenings and host a screening yourself. Um, bring the film to your own neighborhood, buy a DVD, whatever is convenient. It's a big tribe that wants to talk about bridging cultures at this critical time. Wonderful. Thanks again for joining us. All right, folks, we will link in the show notes for you to check out A Towering Task by Alana Day Joseph. Check it out. All right, Zora, I'm really excited to talk about Premature, first feature film that you've worked on in addition to your other work, especially definitely want to talk to you about biracial hair. (laughs) Yeah, I know it goes back a little bit, but it's a good one. And it certainly had a personal impact on me. So for our listeners who haven't seen the film yet, because it's just premiering, what should they know about it? What should they expect? Sure. So Premature is a love story at its core. It's about a young woman named Ayana, and she's the summer right before she's going off to college. She's 17. She's, you know, feeling grown, and she meets someone. She meets Isaiah, and ultimately it's about their love, um, where that takes them, where it takes Ayana, and what it teaches her about herself as well. How did you, as the writer of this, come to this subject matter? How did you birth this story? So I co-wrote Premature with the filmmaker Rashad Ernesto Green, who directed, and we had, um, we've known each other for over 15 years, um, and we've been artistic collaborators in the past, him in the capacity of director, me in the capacity of actor. He also knew me as a writer and knew my work, and we had talked for years and years and years and years and years about writing something together, and then finally... I was in graduate school in San Diego and he called me up and he was like, I think now's the time. I was like, this is terrible timing, but it was the time. And we actually live around the corner from one another in Harlem. I'm from Harlem. He's been living in the neighborhood for the past 20 years. So on my breaks from school, we kind of got in a room together and just started throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what what stuck. We always knew we wanted to write a love story. I'm not really sure, but we kind of just, how that happened, but we kind of came to it almost instantly together. And we always knew that we wanted to set the story in Harlem because it's, again, it's my hometown and it's just a neighborhood that we both know and love so much. And those were our building blocks. And from there, there was a lot of, I mean, our process was a lot of listening to music that inspired us and watching lots and lots and lots of films and just talking, really. I'd say the first, you know, parts of our time together was just sharing stories, um, talking about our own big loves and our own heartbreaks and what it was like for us being 16, 17, 18, whenever it happened and in love for the first time and you know it was crazy too because again we'd known each other for so long but to write with someone is kind of learning them in a new way you know to really see what speaks to them and at and and speaks to them at their core and then once we kind of did that work Ayana was born and so I'd say after we knew it was a love story and after we knew it was set in Harlem we soon after knew that it was going to be through the eyes of Ayana 
So even though it was a love story and there are two, there's my co-star Joshua Boone, Isaiah, that it was really going to be focusing on Ayana's journey through this love. And we weren't going to ever be splitting the perspective with Isaiah. It was kind of going to be, that was important to us to tell the story through the eyes of a young black woman. And then, yeah, and then we have Premature. So I think what's interesting, one of the interesting things about the film is that it is told through the eyes of a black woman. And we're still in this place in entertainment, (laughs) film, whatever, that we don't get a lot of that. So was that a a very intentional choice in that it was more than entertainment? It was sort of a way of making a statement about where we are. I think we can say that. I think, I mean, it was always going to be black people. We always knew that it was going to be a black love story. So I, I should have said that as well. But specifically, Ayana, I mean, I think the main thing that Rashad and I were on the same page about from very early on was that we wanted to offer something else to what was going on in the industry. We kind of were, we started writing this about, I guess now three years ago, and we were just, it felt like the the landscape was just inundated with these stories of black trauma and black victimization and black pain and black death. And while those are important stories to be told and to be experienced. We just wanted to offer something else because as two black people living in this world, we also experience love and, you know, ordinary day-to-day shit, you know, and trouble within our family structures and trouble within ourselves. And there is something about just the mundane, you know, just a little snapshot of this one little corner of the world that happens to be black that was important, you know, and and felt precious. And we wanted to put that on screen in a very specific way. We also really wanted to, going back to that corner of the world, show the Harlem that we knew, which again, like the blocks that we shot on are the blocks that I grew up on, you know, and it is a neighborhood that is changing rapidly. And a lot of what I know of that place is going and gone. So there was also an urgency to kind of immortalize that space that we both loved and that has meant so much to each of our individual developments. So this season on the podcast, I've been having this conversation with my guests around activism or advocacy and the intersection with storytelling. And one thing that I've heard over and over again is that sometimes that unintentionally you become an activist by existing in a space that isn't for you or there aren't a lot of you around. I'm curious to know what you think about that as a writer, an actor, someone who is now in the film industry. Do you consider what you do as a form of advocacy or activism? I certainly consider my art as my own form of activism. I don't necessarily agree with that statement because I think you can exist in a space and create stuff that doesn't necessarily push the agenda or, or change anything, you know, or activate anything. So I don't think just by being in this body and being in this skin that makes me an activist. I think that's a choice, you know, and, and a choice that I choose to explore in my work. When it comes to what we did with Premature, again, I think, well, and if I wish Rashad was here, Rashad, where are you? But he, you know, he would speak specifically to how he got into filmmaking, because again, both him and I, we started in the theater space, and we both started as actors, so we both started on the other side of the camera. And, you know, as an actor, I 
I very much disagree with the the notion that actors don't have agency because they're just here to kind of like, you know, embody somebody's words and it's not their vision and they're kind of pawns. I think there's a lot of people who think that and believe that about actors and I'd like to see you do it without actors. So I don't believe that. However, it is different. You aren't calling the shots all the time. Most of the time you're not. I mean, you might be a lead, you might have some equity or stake in the project, but most of the time, the decisions are being made above your head. And he saw that, you know, he he saw that working as an actor in New York, in the industry, going out, what he was being sent out for, what roles would be written for him, you know, and then also what he knew about being a black man growing up in New York City and living in this world and living in this country and how that wasn't necessarily reflected in what was available, the stories that were available to inhabit. So he you know, he went himself back on to grad school another time to get a filmmaking degree because he wanted to take the power into his own hand. I was I was there for that, you know, because I knew him again when he had just left graduate school as an actor. I kind of saw him go through making that decision and it was very inspiring, you know. And I think having a number of people around me who were kind of making that choice for themselves, whether they were doing it as an actor or choosing to go into filmmaking or writing or playwriting or whatever the case may be, but kind of taking the power back into their hands and changing the lens, you know, changing the story. Or maybe not changing the story, but telling it from their own perspective. Is that an act of activism or advocacy, you think? I think so. It's going to activate something. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. And even even if it's just about activating yourself, you know, and choosing to not be passive in how you are contributing to the spaces and to the world around you. You might write a story and nobody ever hear it or see it or experience it, but even the process through which you get that story out, process being the kind of important word there, can realign you and then change how you engage with others and engage with systems and engage the world. And that I do think is a form of activism. As a creator across multiple disciplines, you are, you're telling stories, right? Lots of different types of stories. For you, why, why storytelling? Why creation? You could, you could do anything conceivably if you wanted to. Why this? Oh, I'm not sure. I, I don't know if we always make these choices ourselves, but I don't, there was never anything else. There's no time I can remember when I wasn't writing or creating something. I recently found, because I'm a little bit of a hoarder, found like little stories that I used to write when I was in elementary school and they had like chapters and covers and all this like very young age effort to like put together a story and present it to the world and I just don't remember a time before that and I do think that sometimes we these things are chosen for us and we follow and sometimes we have to find it on our own I'm not saying that that's the way by which everyone gets to what they do and what brings them life but that certainly was the journey for me. What has this journey taught you about yourself? Uh (laughs) Oh, so much. I mean, I'm learning in real time, you know, second by second, I'm learning. What has this entire journey, I mean, specifically with the film, I've learned there's no use in being quiet about something. It doesn't move anything forward. You know, I think there were a lot of times where I felt because I was so green, which is a word I've come to hate because people use it a lot around me. She's green. I'm not green, I'm black. (laughs) 
that there's this kind of, you know, projected, you should sit back and watch and observe and learn. And all of that is true. But you can sit back and watch and observe and learn and still ask questions and, and still challenge things, you know. Just because I'm new to the film industry does not mean I'm new to the world. <laughs> and I can engage other people on a, you know, a certain intellectual level and go back and forth and ask and push and, you know, have my mind changed and change minds. And I think at first I was just so nervous about it all and nervous about getting it wrong and just and caring I cared so much oh my god about the story and what what we wrote and and wanting to protect it and so there was a lot of tiptoeing and just stuff that when I think of myself I don't necessarily think of myself in that way but it's certainly I guess the circumstances brought that out and now you know kind of a year out of that time looking back I'm like, who was that person? <laughs> so yeah, I think speaking up, that is the that is the thing I've I've learned about myself that it always, always benefits and, and favors me and everyone that I'm working with to, to speak up. There's a way to do it, you know. That doesn't mean you have to scream at the top of your lungs. Maybe you do sometimes. That's all right too. But it just it doesn't serve anyone when you keep it inside. So I do wanna ask you about some of your history about biracial hair because <laughs> I think that was the first time I had heard your name and mm. it, this was several years ago mm. a friend had actually brought it to me it was like have you heard this poem biracial hair you should listen to it because you're biracial <laughs> and I was like okay like I don't know what this is gonna be <laughs> but it ended up being I felt really impactful in a meaningful way because there, you know, I was one of those kids that went to an all-white school and I was like the one biracial kid. <laughs> and so I appreciated it a lot. And I'm curious to know where, what was the inspiration for that? Was there a catalyst moment or was it just a lot of things? Oh my God, it was so, so long ago. But man, I just remember going to school in New York and having white boys touch my hair. And I was a little crazy as a kid. I'm a little crazy now, but I was certainly a little off off the rocker um, as a kid. And I was like, you know, spent a lot of time alone and nobody wanted to mess with me. I mean, I had some kind of run-ins with people teasing and bothering me. You asking about a catalytic moment was, yeah, just kind of that built up. And what I had was my words, you know, I wasn't, I think this is a kid thing, right? You don't necessarily, you're not able to yet articulate it all right there in the moment to the person to tell them what you think about them or how you want them to leave you the fuck alone or whatever the case may be. So you store it and you find, hopefully the prayer is that young people find a way to express it if they can't express it right in that moment. They learn that skill. And for me, it was my writing. So I think it was biracial hair was just, uh, you know, a culmination of a number of instances and not just in you know the school space but in my own home I'm the lightest person in my family except for my daddy my daddy's biracial so you know he's like I'm light and everybody else is is not as light as we are so there was also you know teasing in the household and you know even if it comes from love or it comes from you know um unfamiliarity it still affects you know it still has an, an, an impact and it can leave wounds and and then I wrote <laughs> and then came a poem <laughs> and that was biracial hair well it became more than a poem <laughs> let's let's be honest <laughs> Zora um, I know we're at about time where can people first of all find premature and how can they best connect with you or follow your work 
So we are at Premature Film across social media platforms. This is Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, PrematureFilm.com. And then we're also going to be released theatrically by IFC Films uh, in early 2020. I believe it's February as of now. So also if you follow at IFC Film, there'll be updates about the film as well. And then in terms of my own work, I'm, you know, out here, kind of. I guess I do have a Twitter. It's at Zora Makes. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm around. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me on the show and for this this conversation around storytelling and why you do what you do. I think um, it's been a beautiful conversation and, and hearing what really drives you is fascinating. And I think it's really inspiring for our audience as well. So thank you for that. Listeners, make sure that you follow the film and grab it when it is available and just Google biracial hair if you haven't <laughs> seen it. Like just Google it only like maybe eight minutes or something. It's not very long. It's totally worth your eight minutes of time. Check it out. In the meantime, I will connect to everything in the show notes for you so that you can follow Zora and her work further. And we're going to cut it here, folks. You know how we do every week. Come back next Friday for another amazing episode. Until then, be badass and stay gorgeous, babies. We out. <laughs>